Shalom for the second time tonight. It's the uh, the late show here at the Unexpected Cosmology. We just got through the tour portions. Thank you, everybody, for being a part of that. That was a pretty good study. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you guys did too. And again, thank you, everybody, who makes that a part of your weekly tradition with your families, You know, bringing it into your home, doing a study through the uh, Paleo-Hebrew, a read-through of it, and uh, you know, commentary on top of that. Now, tonight... I've been talking about this for a long time. Really, I've been framing this uh, series for years now and setting it up. And uh, the the Torah, it's you know, the Torah abides uh, Galatians according to the Torah, the commentary. This is gonna be a line for line commentary through the uh, through Galatians, the book of the Galatians. And this has been a long time coming for me. Take you back to the year twenty seventeen, and. Um, now let, let, let's jump to let's just talk 2018 all right 2018 and um i was encouraged as a writer by some i guess you call them special interest groups uh to try to disprove the torah uh just to show that the torah no longer abides that it is no longer applicable to our lives and i was supposed to use the book of galatians to do it and um, it, it took about a year of investigation, and I kept digging into the to Galatians, and I kept talking, trying to talk to these Torah observant individuals, um, and try to figure out like what you know what's going on. After a year of looking into it, I didn't really quite understand Galatians. I, I didn't understand Galatians, but what I did understand was that I. I started looking at the scope of the whole Bible, the whole Bible, which tells you to be obedient to the, obey the commands, obey the Torah. And I'm like, and the Torah is righteousness and it is forever, right? It is established forever. And I'm looking at this and, and I, go, I don't understand Galatians, but it would be total cognitive dissonance on my part to take the whole of the Bible and to say, well, I've got these few books here by Paul and this, basically says, I don't have to obey any of that anymore. Uh, so yeah, I'm just going to junk the whole thing because of these few letters. And it's like, well, why not toss out my Bible at that point? Um, and it's taken me quite a few years to really think through Galatians, think through Romans, think through these books. And I'm I i I'm in love with them. Like I've really wrestled with these books. And you're going to see through here as I'm going to just pull apart each verse and we're going to be looking at them. I hope you guys enjoy this. Let's get right into this. I want to cover a good amount tonight. By yours truly, Noel Joshua Hadley. Uh, here's a couple of verses I throw in the beginning. Shemoth, or Exodus, chapter 12, 49 through 50 says, One Torah shall be to him that is homeborn, and unto the stranger that sojourns among you. Okay? One Torah. So one, one gospel. One Torah. Thus did all, the, the Bible's not two gospels. Okay, it's not the it's not the gospel of you know in the epistles of Paul and then the rest has a different gospel. No, it's one Torah, one gospel, one Bazora. Thus did all the children of Yashrael as uh, as Yahweh commanded Moshe and Aaron, so did they. Now keep in mind here, it says it's for the homeborn, but also the stranger that sojourns among you. Okay, it's for everyone. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. 
Psalms 105.8. His covenant is forever. It has not been done away with. All right. You can see here the, the contents. This is what I have so far. I'm only, um, I decided to go live with this once I was comfortably 16 verses into this. And you could see like uh, 15 through 16 is page 75. I, I take my time getting through this. All right, introduction, the Torah abides. I didn't think it would come to this. You found me out. I was caught. And it's true, all of it. I read from the Torah. I read it at work. I read it in my spare time. I read it early in the morning, late at night, and even on the weekends. There were rumors afloat, but now you've heard it here straight from the horse's mouth. The Torah derives from heaven, and I want to conform my life, and in fact, my very soul, to it. To quote from a literary classic of old, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the Torah of Yahuwah, and in his Torah he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. And whatsoever he does shall prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahuwah knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. Psalm 1. And then one day I was sitting there minding my own business reading a psalm of David, playing a game of Russian roulette with theology. And it occurred to me, the man who delights in the Torah of Yahuwah, meditating upon it day and night, is blessed. That man is blessed. Blessed, I tell you. That's what I wanted to be. Blessed. I will ask. Is the Bible true? The Bible, of course, is the testimony of Yahuwah Alahayam. Alahayam is the Paleo-Hebrew word for God, in case you're curious. And there are many Allah, there are many Alahayam to choose from, many gods out there. I'll speak for myself. I choose the Alahayam of the Bible. Maybe the better question is, is the testimony of Yahuwah Alahayam trustworthy? And true. The man who meditates upon the Torah of Yahuwah day and night will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, bringing forth fruit in his season, prospering at whatsoever he does. Blessed, blessed. Before the wicked, those who reject the Torah, that's how it's defined, it's a contrast, are not so. In the judgment, they are like the chaff which the wind blows away. Slightly rearranging the question for a modern audience, specifically a Bible audience. 
is the testimony of Yahuwah Allahayam eternal and still applicable for our lives today? Or have his words been done away with? Is the man who meditates upon the Torah day and night still blessed? It's a good question. Is it a failed promise? I don't think it is. Has Yahuwah changed his mind? I don't think he has. Is that man now a heretic? Or asked in yet another more straightforward way, are we altogether serving another Allah Hayam in our rejection of the Torah? Now, a great deal of my readers have been asking me about the Torah as of late. Rarely a day goes by without the questions piling up. They hear me talking about these commands and all the Hebrew words associated with them. They've heard me in online interviews and read the resulting forum comments from the seat of the scornful who name and who name call and ridicule. Doing everything in their power to keep others from seeking out the promised blessing of Psalm 1. Because they themselves are not willing to embrace it. They don't want anyone else to embrace it either. They don't want to be convicted of their sins, their transgressions. And people want to know, what is the Torah and how does it apply to them? Well, the Torah directs us to the first five books of the Bible. And that would be Bereshith, Shemoth, Vayikra, uh, Bimidbar, and Devarim. This would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Every king in the kingdom has a law. And when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, it's the Torah. Makes sense that it would be. The writers of scripture often refer to it as instructions in righteous living. Think about that. Righteous living. That's something which the wicked are not concerned with. They're not concerned about being righteous. But the Torah isn't strictly written as one might imagine legal paperwork drawn up today. Yahuwah filled the first five books which Moshe was tasked to pen with incredible stories of righteous men and unrighteous men. He then interwove the lives of those men with instructions on how to uh, become righteous. Also examples of what rebellion against his Torah looks like, practically speaking. Think of uh, Adam and Cain and Enoch and Noah and Nimrod and Abraham and Yitzhak and Yaakov. That would be Jacob. The 12 patriarchs, Moshe, Pharaoh, Korah, Yahushua, Og, and Balaam. Some of these people obeyed the Torah. Then again, others rebelled against it and said it wasn't necessary for their daily living. So do those standards no longer apply today? Would Og and Balaam still be bad guys today? Would Pharaoh? I mean, how do you determine a Nimrod? How do you determine what is right and wrong without the, without the Torah? Learning the Torah and then being obedient to our father's house rules is how we become set apart from the unbelieving world. Saying someone is set apart is nearly identical to saying they're holy. To say Yahuwah, the Alahayam of the Asherahs, holy, 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 can just as easily, easily be interpreted as set apart, set apart, set apart. Some translations straight out interpret it that way. And that is because the Torah is the mirror image of our Heavenly Father. It's his very character. Our Father in Heaven is unchanging from beginning to end. Do you believe that? I do. He's unchanging from beginning to end, which tells us that 
his set-apart ways are also unchanging. He's not bipolar, guys. He's not changing his opinion. And in fact, the Torah is eternal. It says so. We'll get into those passages in the study. I'll give, I'll give you plenty of chapter and verses, believe me. Heaven and earth are even given as witnesses to that fact. I'll go over that as well. So if you can look out your window right now and see heaven or the earth, then the Torah abides. No arguments. No, no ifs, and ands, or buts. Therefore, by its very rules, nobody is allowed to come along later and say it's done away with. Many have tried, but it didn't end so well for them in Scripture. Our instructions in righteous living and the method by which we walk on the narrow path does not reinvent itself with each passing generation. This isn't, Bible's not postmodernist. That's ridiculous and sounds like something which our controllers dish out. To hate the Torah is to despise Yahuwah Alahayam. To want nothing to do with the Torah is to want nothing to do with our Father in Heaven or the Ruach HaKadosh. That would be the Holy Spirit, the dispenser of wisdom. As was the case with Mashiach, the son was fully obedient to his father, Alahayam, and in fact could say or do nothing that he did not first hear or learn from him in heaven. That comes from the Gospel of John. We'll get to that eventually as well. I thought we were to walk as Yahusha HaMashiach walks, not just watch him walk and then walk off in the opposite direction. How can we say we want to spend an eternity with either of them, the father or the son, as well as the Ruach HaKadosh, if we want nothing to do with their very character. Whenever I ask Christians who again claim Jesus came to undo his father's work and that the law has been done away with, when I ask if it's okay that I become, say, a homosexual, they never want to answer that question because they know what comes next. They can't answer the question because they know it's the Torah, specifically the Levitical laws, which most of all, apparently, have been done away with. with they, they say, you know, you can't, you, you can eat pork now because that's been done away with in the Levitical laws. Well, guess what, guys? Homosexuality is too. It's in the Levitical laws, which informs everyone that men having sex with other men is an, an abomination. To be clear, many Christians still follow the Torah, and many do. I'm not belittling everyone. And that's to be commended, but only the bits and pieces which they find culturally relevant. And according to the decade uh, they currently inhabit. Now, there's only 613 laws in the Torah. That's it. There are hundreds of thousands of laws in, in the United States alone, and nobody seems to bat an eye. I mean, have you ever passed through a small town and it's like, you know, the, the speeding laws 70, 40, 30, 50, just up and down, and the cops there waiting to, to run you down the whole time? Nobody, you know, it's like, that's not a big deal. But tell them Yahuwah has 613 and suddenly everyone's having a panic attack or a convulsion. Again, there's only 613 laws. If that seems overbearing at first thought or too anthropological, then I suggest this website, the 613.info. Um, it's an interactive website that lays out every law within the Torah and then categorizes them according to the 10 and the 2. Remember how Yahushua said that the two greatest commands were to love Allah Hayam and to love others? He was referring to the Ten Commandments. The Ten can be divided into two, five and five. Well, wouldn't you know it? The 613 all fall under one of those two categories, the five or the five. It's amazing. 
They all describe, the 613 describe how to flesh out the 10. I encourage you to look through them, but also to notice something. All of the 613 don't necessarily apply to me. Consider the following. I'm, a married, uh, I'm married, and I'm a man. The second born of my father. I'm not a woman. I'm not a Levite priest. I'm not a farmer. I'm not living in the land. That's a big one. I'm not a judge. I don't own any animals at present. I'm not divorced, nor a widow. My elder, my elder brother still lives, and his only wife has sons for inheritors. That's a huge relief. I'm not a leper, nor do I know any lepers. There are lots of laws which do not apply to me, nor will they ever. Some may eventually apply to me, but some will never apply to me. Only some laws apply to me. But let's just assume for the moment that Yahushua did come to undo the work of his father, Yah forbid. And this, this father would be the Demirs, of course, which is now sounding a lot like Gnosticism. It's funny, I, I get called a Gnostic all the time. It's like, seriously? Like, to say that we've done away with the father's evil laws, like, that's that's the Demirs, dude. That's straight up, you know, Gnosticism. Let's just go with it, though. Okay, so done away with. The Torah is done away with. Nailed to the cross, done away with. Am I free to undress my father's wife now? Or how about my wife's sister? Can I bid with her? My son's wife, even my even if my son is dead, is sleeping with her a sin? Can I have sexual relations with a woman and her daughter? Can I have sexual relations with my mom's sister? Can I kick a pregnant woman? Is a man or a woman allowed to have sexual relations with an animal? Can I marry someone outside of the covenant? Are we free to kidnap? That sounds like a good idea, but not really. Am I free to oppress a stranger? Can I cheat a foreigner monetarily? Do the scales for commerce still need to be weighted properly? Can I put my wife away now without a bill of divorce? Can I sell my son or daughter into slavery? Can I have sexual relations with a woman if she's engaged to someone else? Rape. Is that back on the table? Can I steal money and then lie about it? Can I gossip about others? Can I deny possession of something entrusted to me? Can I withhold food, clothing, and sexual relations with my wife? Can we finally dishonor the elderly? That's one that needs to go. Can I stand around idly while someone else's life is in danger? Can I stop doing what I've already vowed to do? Who needs those vows and promises? Did I still have to repent of my transgressions? And that's clearly Torah, by the way. I'll be talking a lot about that. That's the Torah. Repent. People, like, repent of your transgressions. If you, you get it if you do that. You'll get it. Can I have children outside of wedlock? Do I still have to be loving towards foreigners? Can I worship other gods, other Allahayam or Elohim? Can I now imitate other idolaters in clothing or tradition? Can I swear in the name of an idol? Can I make idols for others? Can I mutter incantations? Can I engage in astrology? Can I inquire of spirits? Can I dress like a woman? Am I free to follow the whims of my heart and worship Yahuwah however I feel he should be worshipped via traditions and doctrines of men? Or perhaps not worship them at all. I'll be talking about that one a lot in Galatians. Traditions of men. 
Can I keep stolen items for myself? Can I stop feeding the poor? Can I withhold from charity? Can I bear a grudge? Must the dead still be buried? Seriously, let, the, let them lie where they fall. Can I withhold testimony in court if I have evidence which might pardon someone or set them free? Can I testify falsely? Can we now appoint judges who aren't familiar with the law, the Torah? Can we move our neighbor's boundary marker? There's one law where if two men are fighting, one of the men's wives is forbidden to reach out and harm the other man's balls, his genitals. Is that up for grabs now? Pun intended. Oh, but that's right. Bacon is kosher now. Certainly, if someone were to offer up pork on an altar, it couldn't possibly be an abomination, even if the Antichrist did it. And Sabbath is no longer the mark of Yah. I can just rest whenever I want because Jesus is my Sabbath rest. Kind of like how I don't have to eat or eat bread or drink water anymore because he's both of those things. Did I get that right? <laughs> if you seriously, like, you don't need to rest. You don't need to eat or drink because Jesus is all of those things. Teach me, Breatharian. Please teach me. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven created seven holy days. Created. They originate from his mind, our creator's mind, the same Allah Hayam who created us and the cosmology surrounding us. But let's just snub those inconvenient commands and go with the holidays invented by pagan gods in the Hallmark Company. That sounds biblical. A world without Torah sounds awful, kind of like the one we currently inhabit. What do you know? Imagine what this flat, motionless realm would look like if Yahusha reigned as king. And everyone was obedient to his father's commands. That sounds amazing. That's the room that I want to live in. In a world where the Torah is written on our hearts. Meanwhile, our Masonic and Jesuit controllers, ultimately Rome itself, have reverted everything. They've whispered into everyone's ear that being obedient to our father is sin. And they've been cyclically repeating it for so long that most people simply believe it to be factual. Isn't that sad? They're trapped in a vacuum of postmodernist morality, not knowing what is truly right or wrong, except what is culturally acceptable or according to their own heart. And of course, the heart is deceptive above all other things. When people tell me they don't have to keep the Torah because it's written on their heart, I'm just like, just might as well just bang my head on the desk right now. Because the Torah is done away with. There is no longer a standard of holiness. I know, I, I was there, it's terrible. Christianity is a cesspool of paganism and idolatry worship. I'm so glad I climbed out of it. And you can too. I mean, that, that, that's my hope and prayer that I can, I can give people listening to this the permission to follow the commands and be obedient. You have permission to do it. But you have to be that someone who is desperately desiring the truth. You have to hunger for it and thirst for it. If you're unwilling to break loose from those shackles of sin, which you call freedom, sin is not freedom, right? Transgressing the law is not freedom. Then you'll never see it. Nobody is capable of showing you the truth that is written in scripture. Nobody, not, not me or anybody else. It has to be you. It's on you. Most people frame the Torah with blood and ritual, uh, ritualistic sacrifice and claim that the Torah cannot be obeyed. And that anyone who tries to is lost in their sin because the temple was destroyed and blah, blah, blah. 
Well, here's something which your local controller will never tell. There is not one animal sacrifice in the Torah for conscious sin. It's just not there. I'll be talking more about that later. Two-thirds of the sacrifices are Thanksgiving offerings. It's for the people who love Yahuwah so much that they want to journey to the temple and have dinner with Allah Hayam. All they have to do is bring the groceries. Torah has always been about repentance. If we sin, we ask Yahuwah for forgiveness. The Christian age of grace is a myth. There has always been grace. Not grace to sin. No, grace for repentance. That's Torah. Repent. Yes, it is true that sin leads to death. It is also true that Yahushua HaMashiach is our Savior. He has saved us from Sheol and from eternal death and has allowed us to come back into covenant with him after our forefathers were given a bill of divorce. Why was Yahshua given a bill of divorce? Not because they sinned. Let's get this straight. It's not because they sinned. No, it's because the Torah was unbearable to them. No, they were given a bill of divorce because they refused to repent. They weren't convicted of their transgressions. They didn't think the Torah was applicable for them. They'd done away with it. Where is that familiar? Well, I mean, why does it sound so familiar? To say salvation implies he has freed us from his Torah and granted permission to sin is insanity. Such an attitude has never turned out well for anyone in biblical history, and yet it's practically a Christian mantra. And at any rate, that's how our controllers frame it. Satan is only here to rob, murder, and destroy. He wants you unclean and living in sin. His best weapon is to give us the Torah and then convince us it is the right or godly thing to do to break it. Go home, pick up your Bibles, and give it a read, and then do what it says, not what any controller says. Do what the Bible says. Anyone who tells you differently to disobey it is working for the accuser. Come to think of it, what right does any man have to show up after Mashiach's ascension simply to tell everyone he has a landline phone with heaven and the Torah has been done away with? Mm -hmm. You know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Paul, but also the but Paul people. Whenever the Torah confronts us, there's always that one person in the room attempting to handicap a perfectly righteous Bible study discussion with but Paul. Yeah, they're everywhere, the but Paul people. Perchance you've heard of the Torah terrorist. Well, these are the Torahless terrorists, and they're everywhere. They're the lawless terrorists. Really, it's the question of the hour. Did Paul do away with the Torah, or didn't he? Because Yahuwah sure as Sheol didn't. That's a problem. And so I hereby turn my investigation to Galatine. That would be Galatians. Paul's epistle to the Galatians, seeking to resolve the issue. All right, so starting in verse 1. Here we are. Here we go. Let's get into it. Galatine or Galatians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, an apostle, not a man, neither by man, but by Yahushua HaMashiach and Elohim, the father, or Allah Hayam, the father, who raised him from the dead. Apostle with a capital A is how Paul describes himself, telling us that the road to Damascus story has just been invoked. On the contrary, it 
It may be his pilgrimage to Sinai being referenced, contextually speaking, which would then pair him with the experience of the prophet Eliyahu, maybe even Moshe, and that comes further down the road in uh, Galatians. Mind you, we have nobody else on record except for Dr. Lucas, Paul's biographer, who thought to back his credentials, certainly not the other apostles. Kepha simply called him brother in Kepha Shini, that'd be 2 Peter 3.15, which we will eventually get to, and com comes across as a demotion, if you want my opinion on the matter. He actually never calls him apostle. The 12, as well as various Talmudim, not overlooking the 70, could all claim they were instructed by Mashiach in person. Paul could not. Had he even watched him from afar in a crowd, that would be something notable on the resume. His only encounter can be summed up with a vision while on a journey as per Acts chapter 9. It involved a blinding light and a voice resulting in blindness. Perhaps there is more that he experienced at Sinai, and we shan't forget his heavenly tour in 2 Corinthians 12. But when was he instructed by Mashiach? Exactly. Those details are never given. He certainly wasn't taught by Yaakov or the Twelve. Yaakov would be James, the brother of Yahusha. That much is admitted here. We are simply told that that much is admitted here by Paul. We are simply told in this passage and probably others that Yahusha HaMashiach personally dubbed him an apostle. Well, keep your secrets then, Paul. This time, this seems like just as good a time as any to let you in on the apparent fact that half of my congregation is divided on Paul's credentials. Depending on who you dial, he is either a true apostle or a false apostle, though some manage to, uh, to land somewhere in the middle of the mental gymnastics exercise. Describing him as a dude, maybe even a righteous dude, writing letters and licking stamps rather than scripture. Moving forward, you can dismiss the man, or for sake of argument, we can take his word for it, on being an apostle, that is. At the end of the day, Paul has a grasp on the heavenly mysteries, being schooled by the perishim, and all those would be the Pharisees, and either falls in agreement with Mashiach and in turn the Torah, or he does not. Uh, there, that's the other thing. Modern Christianity claims Paul did away with the Torah, or depending upon who you talk to, certain laws within the Torah, maybe not all of it. You know, it's kind of just pick and choose, right? Pig, lobster, gorillas, kittens, and puppies are back on the plate, apparently. Sex with a menstruating woman is A-OK, -okay, seeing as how everyone is suddenly clean all the time, even when their private parts are bloody. Worst of all, Sabbath is done away with in favor of the Catholic proclamation of Sunday worship. And I barely gotten started. Yahuwaha did not change his mind. None of this is acceptable. He did not change the Sabbath. There is no chapter and verse that says he changed the Sabbath, ever. The entire worldview just described is based almost exclusively upon the proclamation in Paul's 12 or 13 canonical letters. For the most part, we can thank the Protestant Reformation for that. According to the official narrative of history, the reformers not only raised Pauline theology as their rallying cry and banner, but they also literally placed all of their cards on the table in hopes of a non-sabbatical bacon-eating revival, and their hand was Paul. As such, the entirety of scripture is expected to be read using the various midrashes yes, the midrashes of Paul, as the lenses by which the far greater portion is to be interpreted. And might I add, falsely interpreted. That's wrong. I don't jive with that. It should be the other way around. We should be using scripture to interpret Paul, to hold Paul up in a certain light. Either he agrees with scripture or he doesn't. The problem with modern Christianity is that its shepherds are not interested in reversing the order. 
returning to the heart of Yahuwah at Sinai and using the Torah as a lens by which the worldview of Scripture can be understood, held up to the light. If they did so, they know what would happen next. Bible believers would begin, begin to see that the Sabbath is eternal, that Yahuwah is unchanging, that his laws are eternal, that Yahuwah will not do away with them, that Mashiach will not do away with them unless he be a false Mashiach. And that, furthermore, no man is given the authority to do the same, even if he has received a vision. They would begin to see Paul in one of two shades. Either he is a true teacher of the Torah, indicating that they've been twisting his words all along to their own destruction, or that he had indeed done away with the Torah as advertised, making him a wolf in sheep's clothing. Well, which is it? Paul is a test. Look, I have, I've stood on both sides of the true and false prophet paradigm at one time or another. And I can tell you, having finally settled upon the likelihood of a true Paul who taught the Torah, and that's where we're going with in this series. I'm going to show you how Paul taught the Torah. I'm going straight to the, the ground zero to Galatians and showing how he, this has been twisted and twisted and twisted to people's own destruction. That he was most certainly intended as a test. I believe he is a divine test. Absolutely, 100%. Paul was divinely designed to be one. More like the final, the class final at the end of the semester. The professor wants to know who was paying attention in class. Testing a true prophet from a false prophet was literally in the curriculum. We don't call it the Deuteronomy 13 test for nothing. Give it a read and then we will discuss. So here we go. What things soever I command you, guard to do it. You shall not add thereto nor diminish it. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spoken to you, saying, Let us go after other Elohim, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not hearken to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for Yahuwah Elohim proves you to know whether ye love Yahuwah Elohim with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after Yahuwah Elohim, and fear him, and guard his commandments, and obey his voice, and ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. And that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams, shall be put to death, because he has spoken to turn you away from Yahuwah Elohim, which brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim, and redeemed you, and redeemed you out of the house of bondage to thrust you out of the way which Yahuwah Alahayak uh, commanded you to walk in, so shall you put the evil away from the midst of you. That's Deuteronomy 12, 32 through 13, 5. I don't know how this could be made any more obvious. Dropping the commands of Yahuwah, either adding to them or diminishing them, is akin to worshiping another Alahayam. Yahuwah is unchanging. Yahushua HaMashiach is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13.8. It doesn't matter if the prophet had dreams or visions. You know, he had a vision of Jesus coming to him, right? It doesn't matter. Or that those dreams and visions came to pass either. None of that matters according to this. I'm just reading from the Bible. This is what the Bible says. It's not what I say. 
The prophet who tells you the Torah is no more or that you needn't guard it anymore is a false one. He should be destroyed before his disease spreads among the congregation. Those aren't my words, mind you. That, that is the word of Allah Hayyam doing the instructing. Get mad at the teacher, not me. Get mad at the professor. I just happen to be jotting down notes. The Deuteronomy 13 test is applicable to everyone. Though it is certainly ironic when it also applied to Paul, who happened to be the, wait for it, 13th apostle. Here, allow me to give you the his story of scripture in a nutshell. Yahuwah tells man to be obedient to his commands. He says they can choose the blessing or the curse. The people rebel against the blessing, preferring the curse. Next, the prophets come along and tell the people to repent of their willful, willful disobedience. They not only double down on their sins, but kill the prophets, hoping to silence them. So then the son of Allah Hayyam shows up, tells the people to repent and obey our father's commands, and the rest is his story. They kill him too. But wait, there's more. A man named Paul shows up. He's blinded by the light, tells everyone the wicked were wicked to rebel against the Torah in the past, but now it's a thing of righteousness to not guard the commands anymore. Apparently, the Deuteronomy 13 test has been done away with as well. How convenient. Hallelujah. Now everybody rejoice. Does that sound right to you? It sounds wrong to me. Something else must be going on. Perhaps Galatine can, Galatians can determine the outcome of this argument. That is my purpose in writing this line-for-line line commentary, you know. I, for one, would like to know if Paul passes the final or not. I believe he does. Not only that, but as I said earlier, I have come to believe and, in fact, appreciate Paul for the test that he is. He was designed that way. That's certainly my thesis going into this. Eventually, I will cross-reference uh, 2 Peter 3, in which Kepha and his co uh, contemporaries found Paul confusing. I'm of the opinion that Yahuwah made Paul confusing for an intended purpose. He wants us to wrestle with his words and determine whether or not we desire to be obedient especially when someone comes along and gives us a reason not to. Well, now that I've taken that tangent, let's take a closer look at the title which Paul calls himself, Apostle. In Greek, it is, you can see the Greek uh, letters right there, it is pronounced apostolos, so it's pretty close, Apostle. Strong's G652. There are something like 18 occurrences of the word in the New Testament, almost every one of them spoken by Paul. But then here is one usage that I found which can be attrib uh, attributed to Yahusha. Let me read this. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Rabbi and Yahuwaha, and ye say, Well, for I am. If I then, your Yahuwaha and Rabbi, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Amen, amen, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Adonai, neither he that is sent, there's the word apostolos, greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. That comes from the Zora Yochanan, uh, the Gospel of John 13, 12 through 17. I should have very well described the person being sent out as an apostle because that is the, is the word being employed by, by Mashiach. An apostle is therefore a messenger. He is given a message by Yahuwah and then dispatched to the people. So that 
word so uh so that word of yahuwah could be made known stated again an apostle is a delegate a messenger one sent forth with orders which describes paul's claim of himself pretty well did you notice how yahusha hamashiach calls himself yahuwah mm -hmm. he's the same allah Hayam who delivered the torah on sinai Another way of saying this is Yahuwah, the Allah Hayam of Yasharel, was always the son of Allah Hayam. He was always the son of God, always the son of Elohim, always the son of the Father. Though many know him as Jehovah, Yahweh, Yahuwah, or simply the Old Testament God. That's a discussion for another time. Still important to note, though, in Galatians 1-2, I will discuss the origins of the church. One thing at a time. I don't want to give too much away except to say here that the idea of an apostle was not invented by the 12 apostles. The Greeks had already utilized up, uh, apostolos to their advantage long before the advent of Christianity. Just ask Herodotus. And anyways, there were not simply 12 apostles plus Paul, the 13th wheel on a blind date, just as assuredly as there were not 12 Talmudim. Yes, Yahusha assigned 12 Talmudim, those would be the disciples. But then uh, in two of my books, uh, one of them you can see the Bizarre Key for the Gospel of Peter, a commentary, I show that there were, in fact, many, many Talmudim beyond the 12, one of which happened to be Miriam of Migdal. According to uh, uh, the Zohar Kifa, the Gospel of Peter, it says that Miriam of Migdal was a, a disciple. Really interesting. And so I am of the opinion that there were various apostles beyond the 12. Do the, do the 70 apostles of Luke 10 ring a bell? They, too, were sent out as messengers with a message for their king. No, apostolos were not invented in the book of Acts along with the wheel, the sewing, sewing needles, basket weaving, the tambourine, and the flute. The idea of a messenger sent forth from the king with orders can be traced all the way back to Bereshith, that'd be Genesis, though it is specifically spoken of in Shemoth, uh, Exodus. And we read this in Shemoth, Shemoth. Come now, therefore, and I will send you unto Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the children of Yashorel, out of Mitzrayim, Exodus 3.10. Suffice it to say, Moshe was dispatched as a delegate to Pharaoh, but also to Yashorel, given orders and everything. Yes, he was a prophet. A prophet is given direct words from Yahuwah through the Ruach HaKadosh, which sometimes becomes scripture, kind of like how Moshe penned the Torah. I think it would be safe to use the apostolos word to describe him as well, should Greek be applied. <clears throat> be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Mashiach, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. More on Moshe's role as an apostle in a moment, because will you look at what Paul said? Hold on, I'm losing my voice. <clears throat> Seriously, one of the most criticized quote, quotes by ant, the anti-Paul crowd is the one you just read. I think their concern happens to be a good one. Why should we follow Paul when we can very well follow Mashiach? Cut out the middleman. Of course, <clears throat> the lawless crowd will use this passage to claim that Paul was given the authority to do, a, do away with the Torah and that they could very well follow him and still be followers of Mashiach. There is centuries and centuries of theology for you all piled up into a smelly dunghill. What a mess. Perhaps I can spare one or two of you from being added to the mound. Uh, quoting from Exodus again. And Yahuwah said to Moshe, See, I have made you an Elohim, an Alahayam to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. Exodus 7.1.
As a representative messenger dispatched from the king, Moshe carried with him the authority of Yahuwah. You can very well say he was Alahayan to Pharaoh, which is precisely how the text reads. Moshe could have very well stated, imitate me as I imitate Yahuwah, and he wouldn't have been wrong. He was sent in order to guide Yashorel out of slavery and show them the way to the promise. Really, show them the way. And so fast forward so many millennia to the diaspora of Yashorel. Paul claimed that the same of himself. He too was called on a mission. It can be argued whether or not the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had even been written yet. I don't believe they were. Not until decades afterwards or some years afterwards. Paul was sent out to the, he was sent out to the diaspora, the scattered tribes, with no proof of his calling or even textual evidence of Yahushua's message to show for it. It is no stretch of the imagination. Think about like when Moshe went out, he had no Torah to show for it. He had, he had no written document on him. Well, maybe he had the book of Enoch or a couple others, but you guys get the idea. Paul had no gospels to show. He had no written text of the Messiah. Follow me as I follow Mashiach. It is no stretch of the imagination to hear the people ask, how do we follow Mashiach? He had no document to show, so to which Paul would respond, follow me as I follow Mashiach. And of course, Moshe had already written five books on how to walk as Yahushua walked, which brings us back around full circle to Paul, the true or false apostle. The question should not be a matter of whether we are to follow emissaries of the king, but one which asks who the emissaries are and also if they pass the Deuteronomy 13 test, is Paul numbered as one of them? All right, Galatians 1-2. And all the brethren which are with me unto the called out assemblies of Galatia. Ecclesia is the word being employed. To quote Solomon or Shaloma, there is nothing new under the sun. That is to say, Ecclesia is far from being a New Testament discovery. Nobody was sitting around in first century Yehuda going, the Torah is so tiresome, I can't wait for the Ecclesia to finally show up. The church age doctrine is a myth, just like the age of grace. It's a myth. Somebody out there needed to hear that. Church age proponents employ the Ecclesia word for their argument because Paul's letters were written in Greek, whereas the rest of the Bible was penned in an altogether different language, namely Hebrew. All I'm seeing is a sleight of hand. They're either ignorant of the fact or hope that you won't notice the word ecclesia was used in the Septuagint. It is written like this. You can see the Greek letters right there. That would be uh, G1577 and Strong's for all the fact checkers out there. There are numerous occasions when the, uh, the word ecclesia is employed in the Greek LXX, something like 76 times in 72 verses, and here is one of them. And there it is in the Greek right there. I uh, took the time to track it down and highlight it for you. Supposing you're not Greek literate and you know I'm not either, then it's okay. I've taken the time to track down and highlight the Ecclesia word for you. It's, it's a match. The passage is from Deuteronomy 4, 8 through 10, by the way, and appears to be the first instance of Ecclesia in scripture. Sounds important. Let's see what the English equivalent has to say. And this is, of course, the uh, Greek LXX I'm reading from. And what nation is there so great that has commandments and judgments so righteous as all this Torah, which I set before you this day. Only take heed to yourself and guard your soul diligently, 
lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. But teach them your sons and your sons' sons. Especially the day that you stood before Yahuwah Elahayak in Horeb, when Yahuwah said unto me, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth. And that they may teach their children. Teach them what? Teach the the the, uh, the ecclesia what? The Torah. There it is. Gather, gather the people together. The Hebrew equivalent of ecclesia is you can see right there. Hakel, hakel, hakel. In times like these, I'm reminded of the song of old. Here is the church. Here is the steeple. Open the doors and see all the people. And so I'll ask. Which people are we talking about here? Christians? No, it is the children of Yashorel whom we're dealing with, the original set-apart people. But then where are they congregating? In Corinth or Antioch? No, silly, the scene is Sinai. They have been given the Torah by their Allahayam, Yahuwah, and then told not to forget it until Paul comes along and says it's been done away with. Wait, scratch that last part. They were simply told not to forget about it, period. Forget uh, forget about what exactly? Mm-hmm. Some of you have already forgotten, haven't you? It is the word of Alahayam, the Torah, which they were expected to guard, and why I figure a set-apart assembly is so important. There is strength in numbers. Should one person uh, forget one command or another, there are always others there to remind them. Not only that, but it was also expected to be taught to their sons as well as their sons' sons until Paul showed up. Wait, oh, hold that. Hold on. I detect another typo. Best to scratch that out as well and let my editor take an eraser to it. It appears as though my indoctrination hasn't worn off quite yet. Well, anyways, there is your church age. It can be traced back to Sinai and probably even earlier than that. Quickly getting back to the Ecclesia word, most translations settle on churches, though I prefer the phrase called out assemblies, seeing as how church is becoming vacuum of a word for most people nowadays. Well, these specific congregations of Galatia were more than likely populated with new churchgoers, though I imagine some synagogue veterans filled in the ranks. Not only that, but the, the newbies also resided on the Goyim side of the spectrum. Another way of saying that is they were most likely uneducated in Hebrew scripture, having grown up pagans. The very fact that a select number of Galatians were referred to in called out assembly terms tells us they most definitely wanted to be included in Hebrew, his story, as well as the Torah, which served as its found, very foundation. But that's just the thing about new converts. They're easily influenced by wrong teachings. And of course, it is no secret that Paul wrote a letter hoping to shape their theology. Galatians 1.3. Hope you guys are enjoying this. Grace be to you and shalom from Alahayam, the Father, and from our Adonai Yahusha HaMashiach. Yep, grace. I, I can think of a lot of abused words in the Bible as scripture twisting goes, and grace may just be the cream of the crop. Not so long ago, I was sitting around a fire conversing with someone who claimed to be a spokesperson for the Baptist church. 
It was a lovely conversation, by the way. After I took him on a thematic tour of scriptural history, which I already did for you guys, you know, citing the sheer number of instances when the people collectively rebelled against the commands, you know, did away with them. His response was to stand up and passionately proclaim, that's not what my Bible says. My Bible says grace. That was his one point. He just, grace. He just, whatever I said, he just threw, he, I didn't even know what grace really meant, really. He just kept throwing it at me. Yes, it does say grace. My Bible says grace too. We have just found one instance when that is the case. It said grace right there. But then what is grace exactly? That is the question of the hour. An ecclesia congregant could stand around at the base of Sinai singing, Grace, grace, God's grace. I'm not going to actually sing it for you, but you old uh, hymn uh, singers know what I'm talking about. But what good would that do him if he was found to be in open rebellion against the commands of Elohim? Grace was never intended as a crutch for insurrection. For the Hebrew, grace was an action, and when properly executed, always a beauty to behold. It is more like a stride. Not so much a person fumbling head over heels from one transgression to another, as it as it uh, often or as is often pictured by the modern lawless sort. No, he gracefully sashays through the room. Or some of you men who have uh, girdled your loins. In the most masculine terms, of course, which is to say, he manages he manages to avoid stubbing his toe on the coffee table. Now apply the same mental image to the commands of Yahuwah. And anyways, here is how Paul intends the distribution of grace in another letter of his. He says, by whom we have received grace and apostleship, there both of them are, for obedience to the faith among all nations. Let me say this again. The purpose of receiving grace and apostleship, for obedience to the faith among all nations. For his name, among whom are ye also the called of Yahushua HaMashiach, Romans 1, 5-6. There it is. The theme of Romans, as well as the book, which we are currently delving into, Galatians, is grace. In other news, the apostle word rears its head again. It appears as though we have been given a clue as to how Paul intends to visualize his own apostleship when he claims the same title of his audience. But then from this passage, we can also glean that grace and apostleship have been received, however, for a purpose. He even says what it is in the same sentence, so as to not leave us hanging. They are given, wait for it, for obedience to the faith. Rather awkward than if we claim to have faith, but chuck obedience out the window because of grace. Paul would not approve. For the grace of Elohim that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that, denying wickedness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and holy in the present world. And of course, the world is not set apart, so living holy is living set apart from the present world. Titus 2, 11 through 12. Checking for, you know, just checking for consistency here, it appears as though Paul's definition of grace hasn't changed in Titus either. In Romans, we read how grace is a tool for obedience to the faith, while here we learn that it teaches us to deny wickedness and worldly lust, instructing us instead in righteousness and holy living, all of which leads to salvation, of course. Well, now it looks like we have other terms to define. Righteousness is uh, in, in indicative of a certain quality, being morally right or justifiable. 
Much of Christianity has a far worse understanding of righteousness than they do of grace. Oh, don't get me wrong. Yahushua HaMashiach is righteous. He is the perfect embodiment of righteousness, which no man ever achieved. We might even call him righteousness incarnate. But to claim we have a license to sin and that all we are to do is point our finger in the direction of Jesus in the courtroom, thinking he will be our advocate for a life of transgression, is about as solid an argument as a screen door on a submarine. We too can choose not to sin, but more on that in a little while. Like seriously, like guys, you can choose to stop eating you know, bacon. You can choose to start keeping this. It's not that hard. You can keep this out. It's not that hard. The Greek word employed here is uh, dikaios, and in classical terms, signifies someone who is conforming to the custom. One of the ways one can be deemed righteous is by repenting of their transgressions. I'll be talking about that a lot. In picturesque terms, it's the literal act of taking off one's clothing and then dressing in another garment, taking off the garment of the flesh, of sin, and putting on the garment of righteousness and sinning no more. That is how we conform to the standard. We already know what this, that standard is. The Ecclesia was told to teach the Torah to their sons in Deuteronomy 4, 8 through 10. Speaking of the Septuagint, the Greek word for righteousness in the LXX was lifted from the Hebrew, zedek, a word describing actions which fulfill the Elohim-given obligations in the Torah. Say it ain't so. Grace me so when, when you're talking about righteousness in the New Testament, it's just a carryover from the Torah. All right. You're you're fulfilling the the given obligations by Allah Hayam in the Torah. The, the definition doesn't change in the New Testament. Grace means Yahuwah has given us the ability through the Ruach HaKadosh, the Holy Spirit, to obey the Torah handed down to his ecclesia. To be holy means we are set apart and uh, consecrated to Allah Hayam, hence conforming to the standard. By sheer necessity, that implies Yahuwah is the one instructing us. In listening and obeying, we become more like we are, um, we become more like we are, uh, more like Yahusha. Let me phrase that again. I actually wrote that right. We become more and more like Yahusha HaMashiach. I guess I actually wrote that wrong. Where's my editor? I need to call my editor. I'm telling you this now because moving forward, Galatians will be so much more easier to comprehend if we can understand a Torah-centric worldview. Either Paul is delivering grace to his Galatian audience to hand them off to a lifestyle of lawlessness, or he is doing so to lead them towards obedience towards righteousness which is it one is a false prophet whereas the other is a true prophet though a patsy no doubt twisted and contorted by roman controllers will the will the will paul please stand up let's keep reading to see which of the two responds to the challenge galatians 1 4. i think i'm gonna make the goal of stopping for a drink of coffee between every verse and Going, ah. Galatians 1 4. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of Elohim and our Father? And now I'm thinking sin is the word which needs defined. 
I mustn't assume we're all on the same page. Defining sin is a question I regularly ask of Christians whenever they promote a lifestyle of lawlessness via polyanity, and they are often incapable of doing it. Of the hundreds of polyans I've asked, not a single one has given me a chapter and verse. Seriously, it has yet to happen. They, they can't give me a single chapter and verse. Is it because they know what scripture actually says and don't like the answer, or they just don't actually know what it says? That or the boys down at seminary are refusing to manage the electric bill and everyone's fumbling around for a light switch in the dark. Good thing the writers of scripture finally got around to defining sin for us, and it, it goes as follows. Whoever commits sin transgresses also the Torah, for sin is the transgression of the Torah. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abides in him sins not. Whosoever sins has not seen him. So if you're if abiding in him, you're not sinning. If you're sinning, you're not abiding in him. Whoever sins has not seen him, neither known him. Because you can't possibly be following. You're, you're follow, if, you're, if you're doing as your shepherd is doing, then you're following the wrong shepherd. If he's, if he's sinning. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that does righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Right? So let no man deceive you. Because men come up all the time and say, you cannot be righteous. You cannot. You can only be right, righteous through Yahushua HaMashiach. It's like, no. He that does righteousness. Not who, he who claims righteousness on somebody else. He who does righteousness is righteous. That's the Bible. That's not me saying that. That's, that's Yochanan saying this even as he is righteous. He that commits sin is of the devil. For the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the son of Allahayam was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of Allahayam does not commit sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of Allahayam. In this, the children of Allahayam are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever does not righteousness is not of Allah. Neither he that loves not his brother. Yochanan Rishon, that's 1 John 3, 4 through 10. As you may have noticed, I took the highlighter, uh, highlighter and red marker out, sparing no expense. Sin is a transgression against the Torah. Impossible to argue against that, though some will try. We then read that Yahuwah was manifested to take away our sins because in him was no sin, meaning Yahushua did not transgress the Torah. Got it. I think, we, I think everybody can agree on that. I hope everyone can agree on that, which is precisely what Paul happens to be stating. Address either one of them, Paul or Yochanan. Ask why Yahushua came, and they will tell you so that he might take away our sins. This is the part where Christians love to claim Christ obeyed the Torah so that they wouldn't have to, L-O-L. Keep reading then. Yochanan goes on to state that a person cannot abide in Mashiach and still sin. Well, I'll be. Oh, but there's more. Also, let no man deceive you should he claim that you cannot be righteous. Yes, you too can choose righteousness, and that is by conforming to the standard. If you sin thereby transgressing the commands, then repent of it. It's not rocket science. Should a person willingly transgress the Torah and not repent, then he is of the devil. 
If someone tells you to, to transgress the Torah and not repent of it, then he too is of the devil. You don't need an unfathomable formula like E, e equals MC squared for that one either. Pay attention because this may just prove to be my favorite part of Yochanan's explanation when he states, the devil was a sinner from the beginning. Say what? Read it again. The devil was a sinner from the beginning. Well, now apply Yochanan's own definition of sin. Sin is a transgression of the Torah. That can only mean one thing. The Torah may have been handed down as a covenant, uh, as covenant wedding vows, Sinai, but it existed long before Sinai. Or else the devil could not have transgressed the Torah in the beginning. Try not, try not to let cognitive dissonance win the day. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of Elohim and our Father. Before moving on in Galatians, I thought it best that we give verse 4 another read. I mean, with everything Yochanan had to say about sin and the devil. Lay those two passages over each other and the messages agree. Mashiach gave himself for our transgressions of the Torah in order that he might deliver us from the devil, the one who transgressed the Torah from the beginning, the lawless ruler of this world. Finish the sentence. For whom Mashiach has saved from the devil, obeying the Torah, is the will of our heavenly Father. All right, Galatians 1.5. Pausing for another drink of coffee. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Forever is a long time, ain't it? Perhaps we should take a closer look at that. Paul has just gotten done explaining how Mashiach gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the Torah. Oops, I mean, th this present evil world. His conclusion has glory being handed forever and ever to the deliverer who saved us because of our transgressions against his Torah. In Hebrew terms, he's speaking of our high priest as well as the atonement. I will show you where I'm pulling that information from, but before I do, did you know that there are no sacrifices prescribed within the Levitical system which the individual can employ to deal with intentional sin? I, I, I brought this up in the introduction. It's true. Go ahead and scour the Torah if you don't believe me. Read all five books. You have everything to benefit and nothing to lose, even in discovering my error. Leviticus is a big one, containing 247 of the 613 total instructions in the Torah. Though I suggest looking at uh, Abimid Bar or Numbers 15. The short of it is that there are sacrifices for unintentional sins, plenty of those, just not for intentional ones. Actually, most of the sacrifices in the Levitical system have little or nothing to do with transgression. I talked about this about an hour ago. Uh, they come on a volunteer basis and are strictly for drawing closer to Yahuwah through thanksgiving. Sins committed because of carelessness or omission, however, are what may be defined as unintentional. That person can bring an offering and be forgiven. But then the individual who sins intentionally, like say murder, child sacrifice, you know, homosexuality, homosexuality adultery, idolatry, and don't forget uh, Sabbath breaking. I mean, I, I mentioned big ones in there, but I'm, any of the, the 613 laws, you, you break them consciously on purpose is cut off from the people as, as well as from Yahuwah. 
they are judged and given a sentence, often severe. It sounds serious. Now, these here I mentioned are severe ones. You're sentenced for it. it there's, you can't, you can't, there's no offering for that. You, you commit the crime, you do the time. Eternally. Of course, the key word in all of this is individual. He is at a loss to deal with his intentional transgression. The good news, however, is that he has an advocate. There is one and only one sacrifice which satisfies the intentional transgressions of Yasharel. For that, we must look to the agency of high priest and his role in the most holy day of the year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, reading from scripture, he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bowl, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And that would be, of course, the Ark of the uh, Testimony. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Yasharel and because of their transgressions for all of their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Uh, Vaikra, Leviticus 16, 15 through 16. No distinction is made between the type of sins, intentional or not, and the sinners attached to them. All means all. The Hebrew word is likol, which derives from kol. According to Strong's Hebrews 3605, there are 5,418 instances of kol in the Tanakh. That would be the Old Testament. And in every instance, they indicate all, every, and the whole. This is why I've stated repeatedly that nothing has changed between the Old Testament and the renewed, though most simply know it as the new. Certainly, certainly not as it deals with our intentional transgressions. Before Mashiach, I would have so before Mashiach, I would have to point to my high priest and have faith in his sprinkling of the blood over the mercy seat for the cleansing of my impurities, as well as the forgiveness of my sins, something which I was not capable of nor accredited to do. After Mashiach, I point after Mashiach, I point to my high priest. He has a name and it's Yahusha. I have faith in his blood for the cleansing as well as the forgiveness of my sins, being incapable to do it myself. You see, little to nothing, if anything, has changed. My high priest has fulfilled the conditions needed for my intentional transgressions. But Mashiach came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more should the blood of Mashiach, who through the eternal Ruach offered himself without spot, to Allah Hayam, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living Allah Hayam. And for this reason, he is the me uh, mediator of the renewed covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance, Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. And so there it is, Yahusha is our high priest. His entering the most holy place is a reference to the Holy of Holies and the sprinkling of blood upon the mercy seat, which at one time involved the Ark of the Covenant. 
And of course, a lot of you know that I, I think that his blood was actually sprinkled on the mercy seat. But rather than uh, with the blood of goats and calves, his own blood is what obtained eternal redemption. There is the word eternal, reminding us of Paul's insistence that he receives the glory forever and ever. Also worth pointing out is the cleansing of conscience, which the blood of Mashiach is capable of offering. The conscious being spoken of as dead works, implying a mind bent and twisted towards transgressions. Think of like, uh, you have a fruit tree and it, it brings forth rotten fruit or really good fruit, right? I mean, if, it, if you had a tree that brought forth rotten fruit, you're going to cut that tree down, right? Those are the dead works. The cleansing of the high priest on our behalf allows us to not only return into the camp being cleansed, but to enter a servitude of the living Mashiach through good works of the Torah. Again, I ask, what has changed? Had I lived during the tabernacle or even the temple times, we have already seen how the high priest was capable of cleansing me of my uncleanness as well as my transgressions. And of course, I had to look upon my high priest and have faith and belief that, he, that, that Yahuwah's word is true and that I was cleansed and forgiven. Now it is Yahushua HaMashiach who stands in his place. The writer of Hebrews is simply pointing back to Leviticus. And of course, I would say the same of Paul in Galatians. I, for one, am not convinced that the writer of Hebrews is Paul. Frankly, I am suspicious that she, the writer, is perchance a woman, but that's, that's a moot point. Associated with the Church of Rome as well. Uh, though that is, again, another unnecessary rabbit trail. I, I'm just not convinced that it's Paul, but it, so what? If it's Paul, fine. And it, it's certainly not worth going into here. I have just given you a second witness. The problem is that the Paul haters insist the writer of Hebrews is Paul and therefore shouldn't be listened to no matter what anybody has to say on the matter, mostly because the theology and, uh, and Hebrews and Paul fits like a glove. I suppose I will need a third and a fourth witness then. Well, give me a moment to flip forwards and backwards in my Bible, attempting to find a co-conspirator. Well, ah, found one. Who does this come from? Let me check. This is, um, oh, well, we'll find out. It's a long passage. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience towards Allah Hayam, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, uh, oh, this must be Kifa. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before Allah Hayam. For to this you were called, because Mashiach also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Follow his steps in what? Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who only... So he just tells us to fall on his depths, and he's like, he committed no sin, right? Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you are like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Kepha Risham, that's 1 Peter 2, 18-25. Hmm, what do you know? Kepha happens to fall in agreement with the writer of Hebrews. Rather than the life of an animal bearing our sins, 
Mashiach for our sins. Hebrews states a consciousness of dead works has been cleansed, whereas here we have died to sins. That's yet another reference to the function of the high priest. Atonement is literally a covering over. The sins have been redacted. Because of his stripes, we are healed and are now free to re-enter the camp and live for righteousness. That being Yahuwah's instructions of righteous living, the Torah. I'm sorry if I'm being, you know, sounding repetitive, but just kind of keep kind of repeating this so it can be understood. The question is then posed. What if someone is cleansed of their dead works, that being sin? So their the sin is gone, right? Fresh start. And yet returns to the camp of the righteous only to consciously rebel against the Torah via willful disobedience. That doesn't sound like a very good scenario, though it's the argument that is always coming my way daily. I have another witness for you, if anyone is here to answer that question, Yokanon can, John. My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, remember now, he's already defined what sin is, right? Transgression of the Torah. So I write unto you that ye transgress the Torah not. Apparently he didn't get the memo. And if any man sin, let me say, and if any man transgress the Torah, we have an advocate with the Father, Yehusha HaMashiach, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him but whoso guards his word in him verily is the love of allah Hayam perfected hereby know we that we are in him he that says he abides in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked i mean I, that couldn't be any more crystal clear Yokanon, Rishon, 1 John 2, 1 through 6. I should like wear this around like on a t-shirt. I mean, it's just. Sin has already been defined by Yokanon in 1 John 3, 4. No need to repeat that again. Apply it here. This is a little typo there. Apply it here. And as you can see, even Yokanon agrees that Yahusha is our high priest, being our advocate with the Father and the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is just a big fancy Bible word, which means to offer a sacrifice that appeases Allah Hayam's just judgment and righteous anger against us and our sin, our transgression. Well, then just because a sacrifice has been offered for our uncleanness and sin, allowing us to re-enter the camp doesn't exactly mean the said person is dead to his sin either. It would all depend on whether or not he were a living testimony to the works of righteousness. If we know Yahushua, our high priest, that is, if we truly know him, then we will keep his commandments. We will most, we will most certainly strive to do so. And again, what happens when we fail? When we fail, we will repent of our transgressions. That's all he wants. Like, people come up to me all the time. It's like, it's like you know, oh, you know, you, they quote James. Uh, you, you break one part of the Torah, you break all of it. Okay, fine. You just broke the whole Torah. So repent of it. Not rocket science. Just repent. That's what he wants. Repentance. There is the Torah for you. 
Yochanan couldn't be any more clear on the matter of a Torahless individual. A person can re-enter the camp and claim he knows Yahusha HaMashiach and that he's on good terms with them, but if he, if he obstinately chooses to transgress the Torah in claiming that the Torah is done away with or parts of it or whatever, whatever law he doesn't want to keep, then he clearly doesn't know the high priest as he claims. We all know he's a liar and the truth is not in him. Much can be stated regarding Yahusha's role as our high priest, though the point I think has been made for now. The very law of heaven, which instituted the Levitical priest uh, sacrificial system, remains in place. It has to be that way. I mean, imagine the legal ramifications if it were actually done away with. Imagine. Like, what, Yahusha's blood no longer covers us? What are we saying here? I mean, if you if if the Torah is done away with, then what does Yahushua's uh, sacrifice do? do nothing. It's, it's taken away. It, it's no longer in effect. Expect more on that necessary thought in the coming pages. I don't think anybody really thinks through that. That the legal ramifications, you've just done away with the Torah. What are the legal ramifications of that? If Yahushua's sacrifices is all based upon the Torah. For now, I leave you with another picturesque passage from Yochanan, which expounds upon Paul's own glory forever and ever statement in astonishing ways. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to Alahayam by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our Alahayam and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Revelations 5, 8, 1 through 4. I'm going to end on that tonight. And of course, I'll pick this up next week. And um, I hope you guys, you know, I hope you guys enjoyed that. And I, you know, I, my prayer is that somebody out there listening to this was convicted. My prayer is that somebody out there hears this and thinks, oh, my goodness, uh, the Torah abides. It still stands. And I'm going to be held in judgment according to the standards of the Torah. And when we talk about the Ten Commandments, I mean, let's just start there. The Ten Commandments. Fourth Commandment. Fourth commandment. Just start with that one. Be like, I'm going to, I'm going to keep the Sabbath, this holy sacred day that is kept in heaven. I'm going to keep that. And let's start there. Um, so thank you everybody for listening. Shabbat shalom one last time, you guys. Get good rest. You know, I'll say quickly. Uh, you know, it, it I, I work throughout my whole week. I mean, we all do, right? And I, I get to preparation day, which is Friday, and I'm exhausted. I'm just exhausted. But it's kind of funny because while everyone else is like winding down and like, ah, you know, 
It's like, this is when I have to show myself to everybody. So I'm exact. It's almost like in a marathon. And imagine you guys don't see me for like the, you know, what, 20 something odd miles or whatever. And, uh, but like the last lap, I'm coming past the bleachers and everyone's looking at me and I'm like, you know, like, just like dying. Right. And I'm like trying to not crawl across the finish line. That's how I feel when I give these, uh, but, uh, hopefully I'm managed and, uh, I'm exhausted. I'm going to crash. And, uh, yeah, I'll see you guys throughout the week. We'll do this again. Love you guys. Uh, hope you enjoyed it.